Hello, I'm Malcolm, if you're visiting us. And um, I'm a Christian by the grace of God, uh, grabbed by the Lord Jesus Christ in the early 1980s by a talk that was given at a university in Melbourne by a ratbag Christian who became a bishop and uh, sadly passed away way too young. Uh, Ever since then, I've been sinning my heart out, not with any pride. I don't seem to be able to stop it. But, um, But I've also been embraced by the grace and forgiveness of God. And so now, somewhere between God's grace and favour and my attempts to follow him, I stand before you today uh, by the grace of God. I've been here for a little while and um, some people have gotten used to me, which isn't always the best thing. And uh, today uh, we're in week two of a series um, <clears throat> that goes by uh, the title, When God, God's Ways Make No Sense. Because as we get older, um, somehow the weight of the world uh, starts to impact us on, in a way where if we have a real faith in God, we really do see that life is m- more tricky than we could have ever imagined. And we tend to find ways to make sense of it that, um, well, they may work, but I don't know how it works for you, but we can find ourselves having a bit of a Mexican standoff with God. And we can find ourselves in a range of places. So the first two weeks of this series have been looking at two characters uh, and, dare I say, looking from their perspective and seeing how they've responded to God. So it's what I'd call kind of um, uh, the Bible or theology from below as we look up. In the following two weeks, which will be next week and the week after, we'll start to look from above, from his point of view. So if you come away today saying, oh, that was a bit bit grave, that was a bit dour, um, it's because we're looking at it from our perspective. And it can be a bit dour. And we can easily be critics of ourselves And we can look at the world and say, it just doesn't make sense. And it's not fair. And then we look at people who've lived in ways that stand out and we say, well, how did they do that? So just a little bit of a refresher to start with. We we looked at Jonah last week. uh, And you can get these online if you're interested to to have a look at it. Um, And God made no sense to Jonah. Even if we hardly know the story at all, we know that he was told to go to Babylon and instead he went to Spain, which is in like the other direction, entirely the other direction. But when you put it through Jonah's context, your context, your experience, um, for Jonah to, to do what God asked him to do was insane. For Jonah to prophesy God's forgiveness to Nineveh would have been, well, to use an example, to take uh, the general 
a, a general from the Israel Defence Forces who led Unit 269. That general, uh, whose name was Ehud Barak, uh, was uh, given the job of eliminating Palestinian resistance and terrorism. So it would be like Ehud Barak, as the general of Unit 296, being told to go and have a nice little parlay with the Palestinians and then return all the land that they took off the Palestinians in 1948. It, wouldn't have, it would have been the sort of thing that going in the opposite direction, saying that's just insane, would have made sense for it. Preposterous, deeply wrong, unbiblical, unbiblical. You can imagine him saying... Ehud Barak uh, was also the general who was charged uh, with reigning retribution uh, on those who engineered the attack on Jewish athletes at the 1972 Munich Olympics. He led the Israeli hit squad to get them. You can just see how God's ways might make no sense if he was asked to wrestle with God and give Palestine back to the Palestinians. Intriguingly, though, in 1999, um, by this time he became foreign minister and then prime minister of Israel, uh, Ehud Barak actually began a process to begin the necessary peace to negotiate exactly that. To negotiate exactly that. It didn't last long. Because like Jonah, Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 13, 14, prophesied that Israel would crush their enemies. So Jonah became, and, then, and it happened, Jonah became very famous, very famous and massively popular. But in 1999, after he suggested a negotiated peace with Palestine, the massively popular general became the massively unpopular prime minister. Massively unpopular prime minister. So Ehud Barak lost government and hostilities resumed. Jonah resisted and ran from a god he didn't know and couldn't believe in because he didn't make sense. A god who'd made him famous before this ludicrous enterprise, so Jonah resisted and ran. But we discovered last week, and I'm going to repeat this again and again and again, that God seemed more interested in what he was doing in forming Jonah than in what Jonah was doing for him. So that's just the context. We're moving on now, 900 years later. Saul of Tarsus... Now, Saul of Tarsus was never one to resist and to run like Jonah. Jonah resisted and ran. That was never Saul of Tarsus, not in his DNA or his makeup. We read in Ephesians chapter 6 him saying to the Ephesian church, he says to them, having done all to stand, stand then. That's... Saul of Tarsus. Stand then. Saul, and I'll call him Saul, had another way to deal with life when it made no sense. 
we see him take the faith that he valued so highly, his Judaism, and distort it and deny what the scriptures really taught about uh, life, faith, and the coming one of God. So let me just explain a little bit. Uh, Paul, Saul, Saul, sorry, was an incredibly well-formed human being. He was born in a university town in Tarsus in Cilicia, as we heard in the reading today, eastern Turkey, and he had an exemplary uh, pedigree. He was born to well-heeled and credentialed parents, credentialed parents, and he was, he was just in that slot for advancement. He says of himself in Galatians chapter 1, way ahead of any of my contemporaries, beyond reproach, a superior intellect, some would say one of the top couple of intellects to have ever lived, ever lived, a stellar performer, sent to the best school under the most respected and wisest rabbinical teacher in the world of his day, Gamaliel. There were two. There was Hillel and Gamaliel, and he studied under Gamaliel, the traditions of Israel. He was absolutely sold out, committed, zealous to his Jewish heritage, religion, and its outworking in the world. In the pathway to senior leadership was the track that he was on when uh, Stephen, the early Christian martyr and apologist preacher, was stoned to death. Uh, Saul wasn't one of the ones throwing the stones. He was standing back taking the cloaks he clearly had an elevated status already, even as a very young man. He was dedicated to the destruction of those who were less than theologically and pure as practitioners, and his theology was like a laser beam and just as destructive. It's interesting because in Philippians chapter 3 that was read for us this morning, uh, there's, there's this talk about the flesh. We have no confidence in the flesh, verse 3 of chapter 3, even though I too have a reason for confidence in the flesh. In myself, I have reason to be confident. Paul, Saul, could stand righteous without a doubt in the world about himself. And it's interesting because in Jesus' brother's little letter, James, James says that the purpose of God in our lives as Christians is to form us to make us three things, perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. And if you'd asked Saul and his contemporaries about Saul, that would have summarised him perfectly. He could probably get the girl if he was a golfer. He could probably hit it 270 metres dead straight every time. And I hate him. Largely for that. Probably because I envy him. So how did Saul distort and deny the faith that he claimed to be at the 
pinnacle of representation of. Well, he distorted the scripture and he denied the good news of God revealed in Jesus. He had another gospel as a devout Jew. And his gospel looked like this. He was confident in the flesh. Judaism is true. True Jews are chosen by God. Dissidents ought to and will be judged, those who distort this Judaism, and they should be punished and ideally destroyed. There's a gospel. Saul's detestation of Christians was similar to my wife's detestation of slugs and snails. She is a gardener. Those who came and had a drink with us the other night would have seen written at the front door, I hate slugs and snails. It's like, welcome, I hate slugs and snails. Think Saul of Tarsus. Slugs and snails come out of nowhere and devour the true plant before it can bear fruit. They deserve to die. They will die. And I will be out there day and night with torch and club, killing them. But despite his convictions, Saul was utterly wrong about his convictions. And in Acts 22 that was read for us this morning, we were there a couple of weeks ago, standing in this spot where Saul, now Paul, had come to faith. He's on the Temple Mount in the old city of Jerusalem, standing on the steps of the Antonia Fortress. You needed a fortress on the Temple Mount because Jews were always creating insurrections that needed to be put down. And so as they try and carry Paul, Saul, away from those who are trying to kill him, he stands on the steps and says, let me speak to you, fellow Jews. So we were standing there just a couple of weeks ago. And as he stands on those steps on the Temple Mount, He goes on to tell the maddening crowd about his Damascus Road experience where he was confronted by Jesus. So how could Paul, who'd been so resourced in the ways of Judaism, have been so fundamentally wrong? Well, there are three ways we get to distort and deny, particularly things that pertain to our faith. Firstly, in his case, it was the water that he swam in. It was who he hung around. It was where he'd been educated. It was what was built up and what was torn down. It was the water that we swam in. And we talk about that quite a lot here. It was his temperament that suited the water that he swam in and nurtured that temperament. He was zealous off the scale. He loved being right. He loved being beyond reproach. And he loved finding fault and tearing down in a, thirdly, prideful, arrogant way those who saw the world differently. We all have this dilemma of water we swim in, the temperament that we're born with, and sin's wound. Barb just gave a testimony about it this morning and she took it on 
the mere age of 76. Good on you, Bart. Good on you. So he'd been told he was great. He believed it. So it must be right. He distorted and denied the true gospel with a gospel that made sense to him with the formation that he'd had. And it appealed to the flesh. It appealed to his flesh. But after that Damascus Road experience that he spoke about on the steps of the Antonia Fortress on the Temple Mount where we were just a couple of weeks ago, after that experience, Paul, not Saul now, but Paul, disappeared for three years off the face of the map for three years. Why? Why did he disappear? He disappeared because as a zealous human being who'd swum in this water, was so earnest for the truth, but wounded by the affirming arrogance and pride that had been built up and affirmed in him, he needed to untangle the mess that was him. He needed to untangle it, to untangle the distortion and denial of the truth that had been revealed to him by Jesus. You know, people in my game, we wander around longing and wishing that people could have encountered or had some of the encounters with God that we've had the privilege to have had. Because if you had... You know, we're confident, people like me, that you'd see the world differently. We're confident that your faith would yearn to go deeper. We're confident that you'd long to operate in communities that would build you up and not tear you down. But it's easy to not have that unless it's been given to you by God. God has to give it to us. But at the same time, we, we have to long for it. We have to long for the revelation of God in our lives. And the thing that Saul of Tarsus had was he longed to know God. And he longed for the truth about God. But it's easy to become one who distorts and denies. You just take the prevailing ideas that fit your temperament bless, sanctify those ideas. It's usually around how successful I am. Look, I'm successful, so I must be right. And so then, depending on that level of success, we raise ourselves up or lower ourselves around our arrogance and pride accordingly. That's what I do anyway, so I would only say that about me. I'd never say it about you. Let me just give you a couple of illustrations about this. Now, these are both kind of, kind of one's a little bit worldly, but one's very much an in-the-church illustration. This book came out in the mid-1980s, actually. It's an old book. It's still an excellent book, though. And Jack Deere was a Saul of Tarsus. He's an American guy, absolutely extraordinary intellect, very young, and he was risen up. He was the professor of Old Testament theology at Dallas Theological Seminary in his late 20s, early 30s. Dallas is one of those places, man, they know the truth, they study the truth, they can do it in any language you like, they love the Bible, they teach the Bible, they know the Bible, they can argue the Bible and they can argue it with you and they will bury you. 
because it's an intellectual thing. Uh, I would read books by theologians from the Baptist, uh, sorry, the, the um, Dallas Theological Seminary because they'll be good books. They'll be strong, hard-headed books. But this book is actually Jack Deere, Professor of Old Testament Theology at his book, his declaration about being wrong, about being wrong about God and declaring how wrong he was in 356 pages and acknowledging that he was wrong to the whole world and obviously getting the sack soon after. It cost him. It cost him. And he claimed that the reason that he was wrong was because he actually thought he'd studied the Bible really, really well, but mostly he'd swum in water with brothers and sisters who'd studied the Bible like him really, really well, and they basically all agreed with each other. So he said, as much as studying the Bible, what I'd really studied is what others had said about the Bible and what I should believe about it as a result. And I'd become brilliant in those arguments and I could, I could destroy people. Uh, a psychiatrist named John White, who if you're old enough, you'll remember because he wrote about 25 books in about five years and became pretty famous, challenged Jack Deere to actually read the Bible. And when Jack did read the Bible, he, he kept finding that his own arguments were demolished. He could demolish his own arguments. It was a very, very difficult place to be. And he wanted to just distort and deny what was coming at him. Jack Deere's gospel was, the Bible's true, my interpretation of the Bible's true, agree with me or be judged or I'll destroy you because you're a heretic. Just an interesting story. The thing that Jack Deere actually came alive to was, there is a Holy Spirit. <laughs> and he actually does things. Now. Big shock to Jack. Really messed up his world. Big shock to Paul. Really messed up his world too. God might mess up my world because he wants to form me in another way. Second little story. Great, interesting read this. The Benedict Option, Rod Dreyer. Um, he's looking at what's happening in the church today and he, basically the title gives it away. He said, I think we need to get back to St Benedict. He's not Catholic. He's, a, he's what we call in terms of tags and titles, which we don't try not to do too much of, but he's a very conservative Christian um, in, in the evangelical tradition. Um, but he comes back with, we need more of Benedict. He gives an example of the challenges to Christian faith together, and he says this. He says, the changes that have overtaken the Western world in modern times have revolutionised everything. Even the church, which, quote, no longer forms souls, but caters to selves. Hmm. No longer forms souls, 
but caters to selves. He, he goes on to say, we are under the power of a sneaky kind of secularism in here to the point where the Christianity taught in the church is devoid of power and life. He quotes a larger scale sociological survey, survey carried out amongst American teenagers a couple of years ago and um, this is what it found. They discovered what they described as the five tenets to the modern gospel. There is a creator God. Who This is surveying, I think, something like 5,500 young American Christians you know, in all traditions and whatnot. There's a creator God who oversees human life on earth. Um, God wants people to be good, nice and fair as the Bible and most religions teach. The goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. So this is the feedback of 5,500 American Christian kids. God doesn't need to be overly involved in one's life except when there's a problem and we need a life raft. Good people get to heaven. We're not sure what happens to the others. So the researchers dubbed this not Christianity, but MTD, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Isn't that fancy? I like MTD better. So it's about being moral in some form or other. God wants us to be moral, which is good, happy and nice. It's really a therapy structure and system for church people. And God's definitely there, but our relationship with him is fairly arbitrary. He probably stands far off and is not overly involved. Sitting down here praying, we pray three times a week in this church, someone said, that's what I used to believe before I came here. Well, I was encouraged by that, actually. I'm sorry that this person used to believe that, but it's not what I believe but moral therapeutic deism may be pretty much what mums and dads think the church's job is. Give my kids a nice, safe place. Keep them happy and nice, but the pathway of education is really, really, really vital. And you can have about two and a half weeks, two and a half hours a week of my kids. Try teaching maths that way. Adreas says MTD is the natural religion of a culture that worships self and material comfort. So Saul distorted and denied what he didn't like or know, or understand, but am I any different? Are you any different? We want a God that fits in and makes sense, even if the God is no God at all. It's interesting because in the reading from Philippians chapter 3, 
Paul says, he starts it in a really interesting way. He says, to write the same things to you is not troublesome to me. Some people say to me, oh, look, can you tell us something new? Paul says, to write the same thing to you isn't troublesome to me. Why? Because we're pretty dumb and we tend towards not being very safe. So repetition is important. Why? For safety. They keep giving you the drill on the aeroplane every time you fly for your safety. Because when you're under pressure, you tend to forget it. Repetition of truth promotes safety. And then Paul goes on to warn the Philippians against people just like he was when he was Saul. Like I'm sure Barb would warn you against people like her, before she had insight to do things in a different way. I'd warn you against people like me. There's nothing like a reformed smoker, is there? So people who distort and deny by offering false gospels, albeit well-meaningly, are still distorting and denying the faith. So, we're finished As God sets about forming Jonah, he resists and runs. Jonah resists and runs when he sees, one, God's dreadful management style, two, God's lousy understanding of geopolitics and God's incomprehensible, intolerable intolerable expectations. He just says, not having it, I'm out of here. As God sets about reforming Saul into Paul, who's developed a false gospel, a false view of God, a gospel that's been formed by cultural expectations, temperament and training and a well-groomed, hardened, sinful, prideful, arrogant heart, we need to realise that when God's ways don't make sense, perhaps this is an opportunity and an opening of a door for a new formation for us. So the next two weeks we'll ponder the God who makes no sense but might want us to be open to some sort of new formation. So, Lord, uh, whatever you're doing in our lives this morning, as we respect on your ways, uh, reflect on your ways, I should say, I would pray that you would touch our hearts by your Holy Spirit, Father. The prayer team this morning, their word, I think, was be filled Lord, you want to challenge us to repent, to turn around, to look to you and to be filled. Lord, I'm reminded that on this trip to Israel, one of the things that struck me like a train was how soon you would have been put to death if your ministry had not focused way up in the wilderness in Galilee. Because we don't like truth that asks us to repent. And we didn't even like it when it came in the person and work of the Son of God. So this day, help us to open our hearts to you experience that look in your 
face, that tear in your eye, that is both love and invitation as well as challenge. In Jesus' name, amen.